Hey everyone, welcome back to the Sales Leadership Foundations podcast. I'm your host, Ray Green, and if you're in a sales or revenue leadership role, you're in the right place. On this podcast, we explore the various things it takes to build a high-performance sales organization. We talk strategy, tactics, culture, leadership, and maybe most importantly, self-leadership. You'll hear from me and the lessons that I learned on my own journey from sales rep to CEO, as well as other guests and experts, including some of the members of our own Sales Leadership Foundations Forum and Mastermind community. Check out rayjgreen.com for more information about me and forum.rayjgreen.com for more information about the community. Thanks for listening. Now let's dive into why you're here today. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Sales Leadership Foundations. Today, we have back on the show, Bob Perkins. Bob joined us in our last episode for, uh, for a shorter interview, and this time we do a more full-length show with him. So excited to have him back. Bob, if you recall, is a man that has been basically selling things to people uh, his entire life, from everything from politics to pizza to fashion and more. Uh, he's been a senior executive and in the C-suite of companies that are household names such as Playboy, Pizza Hut, Calvin Klein, and others. So we're really excited to have him back. And without further ado, let's jump into it. So welcome back to the show, Bob, round two. Thank you. So I wanted to ask you first on, um, you know, so as we were, we were talking actually to like a, a mutual friend uh, the other day, and one of the comments that he made is something that I has always stood out to me about you, and it's that I can call you with a business problem of almost any type, like it's a tech, a tech SaaS company, it can be a startup, it can be an old manufacturing company, and you always have some some insight or unique insight into that model. And so I I always wonder, what are your learning routines? Like, what are your what are your books? What are your resources? What are your your patterns? Like, what where would you say that that comes from, or what what specific resources or routines do you do you emphasize in your learning pattern? I had a funny experience. I was in politics for a long time doing direct marketing. And I decided I wanted to become a chief marketing officer. And then I realized that I discovered the hard way that no one would hire a chief marketing officer whose experience was had just been in politics. There was a prejudice against that. Inappropriate, in my opinion, but that's another story. So I said, well, I should get hired by an advertising agency. So long, circuitous story, I get hired by Shiat Day. And I know nothing about advertising. I don't know what a hut level is. I don't know what a GRP is. I spent my entire life in direct marketing. And if there's one thing you want, you could say about Shiat Day is Jaden only cared about television, advertising, and outdoor. Everything else bored him to pieces. So I had to learn a great deal very quickly. So I gave myself my own little graduate school training and reading books and talking to people. And, and Guy Day, bless his heart, who was the day of Shiat Day, uh, much more approachable than Jay, was a great mentor. But after a while, I discovered, gee, you can keep up with these guys. And we had pretty heavyweight clients. Michael Dell, Dell Computer was a client. Apple was a client briefly until we got fired before we could get hired back. Nike was a client. I mean, we had uh, the largest savings loan in the United States was a client. So we had real people, real businesses. The fact that after six months, I felt comfortable talking to anybody convinced me that there was a sort of what 
the buzzword is continuous learning, but you had to stay interested. And what I really got interested in was business books. And I traveled a lot. And every time you got stuck in an airport, you could go over to any airport bookstore, less so now than 25 years ago, and buy a book. And then Amazon came out and you could buy books. And the one insight I had is you didn't need to read them. You needed to look at the, read the introduction, read the first 50 pages. But most of the time, you could just, after 50 pages, you could say, I got it. I don't need to be an expert in this. Now, every now and then, you find a book that's so good and so fabulous that you read all of it. But it's sort of the inverse of reading one book perfectly is not nearly as valuable as reading 10 books imperfectly. Because of the 10 imperfect books you read, and I'll give you a perfect example in a second, one of them really becomes a lodestone for you. And the rest just starts to infuse your general thinking. So when someone asks you a question, you sort of could pull it out of your mind. But, you know, when I first bought Clayton Christensen's The Innovator's Dilemma, I think I read 100 pages and said, I understand this book. I get it. And I love Clayton Christensen, may he rest in peace. But when I read Competing Against Luck, his book about jobs theory, I read that book twice. I mean, that, that book really resonated to me. So I think you just have to develop the habit of setting time aside to read, and you have to get rid of the perfection. If I'm not going to pick this book up because I don't think I can finish it, well, pick it up and read 50 pages. You'll be better for it. And if you go through my Kindle list right now, you'll see that I probably finish one book in 10. I get 50, 60, 70 pages out of 10 books in 10. Well, that's not quite true. There are a couple that you read the first chapter and you go, why did I buy this book again? <laughs> but anyway, that's, the, that's my backstory. So the, the business books, I am one of the, I finish the books and it, it bothers me tremendously when I can't finish the book. It's a, and it's, it's, it's not a good habit necessarily because I'm wasting a lot of time on books that I don't necessarily need to finish. But one of the things that I, I've learned is I also have a habit of when I really love a book, like, so I, you know, I read maybe a book a week, but when I really love a book, I start wanting to apply the principles and what that can do. So, you know, if you're a CEO and you've got 50 employees and you're reading a new book and you're like, Hey, today it's jobs theory. Like we're, we're going to be, we're going to be talking about this. And then, you know, you, I start another book and I'm like, it's going to be a different model or it's a different framework. How do you prevent that from happening? I think the most underrated thing in business today is strategy. And, you know, Peter Drucker famously said, the essence of strategy is denial. And I'm working on a startup right now. And I would say the CEO and I have this constant tension of, he is, let's try something new. And I am, let's keep doing what we're doing. <laughs> and I think that works out pretty well for us because he can't chase down every new thing that he comes up with. But after a while, he can beat me into saying, maybe this is a good change. <laughs> but I think that's a real challenge. I think that's one of the biggest challenges in business, particularly since most of us are in the businesses that, don't, that aren't static. If you're running Bob's Pizza and it's been in Cresco, Iowa for 25 years, 
the world is pretty consistent. So you're not motivated very much to change. You don't have the exogenous variable to use that wonderful word. But if you're in a startup like I'm doing now, or if you're running a pizza hut, when I was chief marketing officer at Pizza Hut, one day Domino's was a, a little chain in Michigan that nobody cared about. And the next day it was a national juggernaut. So there's a lot of pressure to change your strategy. And I think that too few people lock themselves in a room and think about that very question. And just an example, I joined the board of a company in 2000, right after it was a tech company. It had been worth $2 billion. 2000, the bottom falls out of the tech market. It's worth $200 million and probably headed for, toward bankruptcy. And one of the first things I agreed with the CEO was is the board once a year would go on a three-day retreat. And all we would do is talk about strategy. And of course, we played a little golf and we had some great food and we drank some wonderful wine. But it was a real, it was sort of a sea anchor for the company. We came back from that. We sort of had laid out the next 12 months. It took a lot to change that strategy. But if somebody really wanted to change it, they knew there'd be a board retreat next year and they would have an hour to present it. The board could spend three hours talking about it and then we could chew on it over dinner. So I think you need to build into your thought process some structural way of saying strategy changes are very difficult on people. They usually, and people underestimate why they're difficult. They are difficult because people hate change, but they're mostly difficult because the people you hired to do strategy A may not be the people who need to do strategy B. And nobody ever thinks about that. You know, we've designed a team to do X, but now we want to do Q. Well, those aren't the right people for that. And that's not their fault. And some of them might be able to transition over, but a lot of them can't. So I think the changing strategy thing is wildly underappreciated and almost never thought about as sort of an organizational, okay, here's how we do this. Here's how we keep on it. It's one advantage you have if you're a consultant. You can tell client A this and client B that and client C that. So you feel like I'm using all my new ideas. But if you're the CEO of a company, you got to be much more dedicated. We've just recently started working with with clients, we did a workshop a, a week ago, and we're doing a, another one with the forum now on uh, on operating systems, like business operating systems. So, you know, getting the the foundation in place, and then you know, building out your your goal, whatever you want to call it, your wig, your BHAG, like however you want to however you want to frame it, and then building back from that your quarterly KPIs and all that. I've seen that help keep things focused. How many companies do you think are are using? an operating system well or clear on their strategy at the in the C-suite or the boardroom? I think it depends on three things. First of all, it has a lot to do with the longevity of the company. The longer the company's been around, the less likely it is to feel the need to change. It also has a lot to do with the turbulence of the industry you're in. I mean, you know, Ford Motor Company, just to pick somebody out, and I don't follow the automotive industry at all, but Ford Motor Company never thought Elon Musk would build a company, never thought electric cars would become a big deal. And now they wake up and he's built a giant company bigger than them. And it looks like electric cars are going to take over the world. 
they went from a very stable world where we have dealers, we have distributors, we have manufacturing plants. All you need to worry about is what color is the interior to a totally new world. And they clearly missed it. So how long has the company been in business? What's the stability? What's the turbulence of the factor? And then there's a lot on what's going on with the product itself. I read a really good discussion today about Intel, how Intel had lost their way. And that's a, you could call that the turbulence of the industry, but it's much more generic, it's much more specific about their product. So I think it's, it depends on, you get a young company, it's going to be tempted to do that all the time. You get a company in a turbulent environment, they're going to be tempted to do that all the time. You get a dying product, you're going to be tempted to do that all the time. Mm-hmm. But just look, pick a company that we all know and remember and love, AOL. We all, I remember 2000, 1998, 1999, AOL was going to rule the world. They were we're sending out millions and tens of hundreds of millions of discs, and everybody was running around trying to plug into phones. And if you would have asked me, is this a good investment? I would have said, well, they're awfully, they got a really high PE ratio, so maybe not, but they're clearly going to dominate the world. Didn't work out that way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whereas I think Google, just to pick somebody else who I didn't think would dominate the world and is. They're channeling all that nervous energy into the holding company. They're saying, hey, we got a lot of extra money. Let's let Google be Google and let's we'll spend money on autonomous car. I mean, they've spent billions of dollars for no return, but at least the core business is still being the core business. Right. So if you're the say you're the the, the CEO or or an exec at a mid-market size company and you and you're listening now and you go, you know, this kind of resonates. I want to. I want to sit down and start to to really clarify and define the strategy. Where would you, what would you recommend for them? Where would they start? I would take a week off and try to learn as much as I possibly could about my competitive set. I think the most underappreciated variable in running a mid-sized company is the competitive set. You may, be, you may have a great little company and a couple of kids in a garage may invent something that makes your life miserable possible. Much more likely that what somebody in an adjacent competitive field sees an opportunity to move into your field and eats your lunch. So I'd spend a lot of time trying to get better competitive set information. And then I would try to when I was on the board of 24-7, I mentioned these quarter, these annual retreats we had. So one of the things we did is we had an economist come in and say, here's what the economy is going to look like for the next two to four years. And we all know the old saw. Hoover said, I want an economist with one arm so they can't say and on the other hand. <laughs> but so this guy said, I think you're going to have two great years. And then I think it's, you're going to have two tough years. So you should either sell the company or batten down the hatches because it's going to be a rough economic environment. So we decided to sell the company, sold the company. Turned out we were brilliant. You know, luck is very important here. But we had 30% of the market. Our biggest competitor had 50% of the market. We didn't think that was going to change. We didn't think we could change that very much. And we thought if we went into a hard time, we would have much more difficulty surviving than they would. 
So let's find somebody that can view us essentially as a tuck-in acquisition. When you talk about a $700 million acquisition, tuck-in doesn't seem to be the right word, but that's what it was really. So I think the first thing you got to do is figure out the competitive set. The next thing you got to do is think about your horizon. What's your time horizon to make this work? And then thirdly, to go back to something I said earlier, you got to really think about the, what are the people capable of? And I'm not a big fan of hiring consultants, even though I am a consultant. I understand that's foolish. But this is an area where people usually don't have a very, oh, Bob is the best chief marketing officer in the world because he really understands television, which was probably true when I ran Pizza Hut, by the way. I'm not sure I'd be the best chief marketing officer in a company that was driving its business with social media. So if you said, hey, there's going to be a change here, and hey, you're going to have to go to social media, even though you think Perkins is a high performer and doing a great job, is he or she going to be able to do the new job? People don't think about that very much. They come in and say, here's the new plan of attack. Let's go. And very rarely is it mapped out very strong. So I think you've got to pay a lot more attention to it. Drucker says famously that managers have two goals, two tasks. One is to set objectives and two is to pick the right teams. And the pick the right teams one is, is the most underrated, in my opinion. Hmm. And that's particularly true when you're talking about strategies, changing strategies. You've said, and I, I've now repeated this at least a million times, the, the tactics follow strategy. Where does strategy begin and end? Like what is, how do you define it? Not necessarily like a, a semantic version of it, but if you're, if you're sitting down with a CEO, like what is, what is strategy? Where does it begin? Where does it end? What's the product we're going to sell? Who are we going to sell it? And why will we make a profit? That's strategy. It's that simple. And with all due respect to Clayton Christensen, that's pretty much Clayton Christensen, by the way. You answer those three questions and you have yourself a strategy. Everything else sort of dovetails in behind that. What's the product we're going to sell? Who are we going to sell it to? And why can we do it that and make a profit? Mm-hmm. As I grow older, and God knows I am growing older, I think that to go back to your book idea, I think one of the great disservices we all do is not shutting the door and getting out a white piece of paper and answering those kind of questions based on the knowledge we have. I think most of, most of us underplay our skill set. I was in a meeting yesterday talking to somebody about a business I know pretty well, and I said to him, I should have seen that it was a bad thing. I should have seen that coming. So we all agreed. I should have, he should have, they should have, we should have. You know, it was a friendly meeting. But I got thinking to myself, why didn't you see it coming? Well, it's because you never sat down and spent two hours saying, how exactly is this going to work, really? I mean, and we just... I think people shy away from the, those tough questions. And it's easy to get all involved in different strategic matrices and cash cows and dogs and, you know, disruption. I mean, there's a lot of fun stuff you can do. But at the end of the day, I think it's simpler than we make it 
it's just hard because it's hard to sit down and get rid of your own biases. I think that's the other thing. Hope springs eternal. And I think we are talking earlier about strategy. I think one of the toughest things in business is to balance optimism and realism. Nobody wants a CEO who comes into the office every day and says, oh, man, are we fucked and this is terrible. And we'll never get this done. Oh, shit, I'm going home. My head hurts. On the other hand, nobody wants to come into the office day and have a CEO and say, well, we only sold two of these and the plan was 100, but that's progress and we're knocking down doors. And we're, I mean, so there's this balancing act between optimism and realism. And I tend to be, as you know, I'm a little more of the pessimist, realist kind of guy. Other people are a little more of the optimist kind of people. But getting that balance right is one reason that how you get a consistent strategy, because the optimist always thinks there's a, both extremes think the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. If you're an optimist, oh, we can do another thing. That'll be great. If you're a pessimist, we have to do another thing. That'll be great. But if you're in the middle, you say, hey, we can make this work the way we are. So this balancing act between optimism and pessimism has a lot to do with your ability to maintain a consistent strategy and to tweak it. Everybody says the first line in the Hippocratic Oath is do no harm. That is not the first line in the Hippocratic Oath. Do no harm is not in the Hippocratic Oath. But the concept of let's make as few as changes as possible is rarely a popular position, but is often the right one. Mm-hmm. Let's not, we're going straight north. Let's not go back straight south. Let's go right five degrees. Let's change this a little bit. But if you don't have the optimism pessimism balance right, it's easy to, to fall sucker to the big change because well, both said, ends of the spectrum want the big change for different reasons. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. When I asked about the strategy, you know, if you're the CEO, like what would you do? The first thing that you said was take a week off. And it fits a little bit with what you said about the books. You know, you can get lost in the, in the matrixes and the you know, in the frameworks and the books. And, you know, there's a, there's a new author with a new framework for a new thing that you could, you could read every week. I have learned this maybe the hard way that sometimes what you need to do is just get like, let yourself think, like figure out your own thoughts, figure out your own brain space, figure out your own opinion. And it, and it also fits with what you just said about undervaluing your own skill set or undervaluing your own skills and knowledge. You're always looking for, you know, for more, like pouring more into this. But more often than not, you're right. If we if we create the space to think clearly, a lot of times the, the answer's right here, but we just keep jamming more information. Like this book a week habit that I've had forever, it's just I'm jamming more and more and more into my brain to, at the expense of time that you could just be kind of setting with what's already what's already there. One of the problems with all of the advanced degrees in math and AI is that we overcomplicate. I was reading a report this morning, actually, and it was a piece of research that someone did. What will retailers find important in the 2021? 82% said it was the customer experience. Oh, really? I mean, (laughs) down from 88%? I mean, the game changer. I I mean, 
Gee, I think that's probably true. I would probably agree with that. But the point is, you didn't need to read that chart if you're sitting around thinking about how to run a better retail. My stepson has one of the most successful marijuana dispensaries in California. And he took one look at the industry and said, and with very little advice from me, I'm taking no credit for this, and said, he took my, he did take my advice and went to a lot of marijuana dispensaries and he said, they're all boring, they're all stale, they all treat you badly. So I'm going to have a place that looks like a flamingo lounge. Everybody's going to be friendly. Everybody's going to be, you know, we're going to have a, a coffee shop. You can just sit out there and drink coffee, do whatever you, in other words, I'm going to treat this like, how do I make this the perfect customer experience? He's knocking the doors off. If you said to him, how did you know to do that? He said, well, I knew how I wanted to be treated. When I came in and I gave somebody my driver's license to prove I was the right age and a citizen and all that kind of stuff, I didn't want him to go, thank you. I wanted him to go, hey, JP, nice to see you. How are you doing? Is this your first time here? We hope you have a great time. You know, here are our operating hours and here's a card. If you ever need any help, call the manager. Mm -hmm. So that's what they do. No one ever calls them, but everybody feels empowered. Everybody feels, you know, they don't have in the exact opposite of choice. He went to all these stores and discovered that everybody had so many choices, he couldn't figure out what he wanted. Mm -hmm. He's not a big user, but so he has a relatively limited product offering in his store, but he has very smart people who say, this is what I want. They say, this is the product for you. I mean, I had to go to the grocery store a couple of days ago. I'm walking down the beer aisle and I am not a beer drinker, but how do you pick? I mean, there are more beers than there are God, you know, I mean, 7,000 different varieties and, and, People make a lot of money selling beer. I get that. But I think that people make it harder than it needs to be. Well, the 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 story that you shared about the the marijuana dispensaries is also goes back to your earlier point about understanding the competitive set. Take time, go check out what's out there and then figure out where the where the gap is and and if the market is you know, going back to the questions that you you said about strategy, can you answer these questions and fill that gap and you have a good idea? There, there's your strategy and you can see it kind of play out there. What's the, of, of all the learning that you've, that you've done, is there one that stands out to you as something that you, that's most under leveraged by you or anything? I think competing against luck, Christensen's book about new product development is far and away the best single thing that I've read. And so, but it gets back to my three questions. What's the product? What's the consumer? And how are you going to make money selling it? So anyway, so my own opinion is that beyond that, I think my biggest mistake is not thinking through what I already know. I think if I was to write a business book, I would write it on keep it simple, stupid. I would write it on we make this all so difficult when in reality it's it's much simpler than it is. And I'm thinking now about startups and mid-sized businesses. Once you run 
a large publicly traded company, you got all kinds of challenges and problems, and you probably better have a bunch of MBAs that have charts and graphs and spreadsheets. But I think for most businesses under $100 million in revenue, just to pick a number, keeping it simple and straightforward is a better way to do it. And I think it took me a long time to learn that. Yeah, we see that a lot on the on the audit side of things when we go when we do the audits for the sales works and you and we you know you pop the hood and you start looking at you know what's underneath the organization and you have this like a small business with all this you know fourteen different solution providers for different things and a, a different CRM and a different integration and different this and it's it's almost always overcomplicated. It's like the it's the result of I think in some sense buying the solutions and buying the new tech with, with without having a well thought out cohesive strategy and then putting in the tools and the tech and to fill the tactical part of it. But that's, it's, it's kind of the, the default mode of not having a clear vision and a clear strategy as you start piecing these things together and then realize the system kind of works, but it's not, it's not anywhere near optimized. You know, in the little company I'm involved with now, we've done, I think, an excellent job of having a sales funnel and keeping track of people and keeping everything organized. And we tried Salesforce for a while. And then we discovered that we just did better with the big Excel spreadsheet and some Trello boards. And this is not a knock at Salesforce at all. This is just for a certain size organization. If you have five people, you're better off to keep it as simple and as obvious as you possibly can. And that's for us, that's a big Excel spreadsheet and Trello boards. Mm -hmm. Now, when we get to be 35 or $40 million and have lots of clients, I'm sure we'll be on Salesforce. But it's keeping the technology consistent with the level of sophistication of the organization. And, you know, I was in a meeting the other day and somebody said, well, when we have 300 clients, we'll need this. And I went, when we have 250 clients, you call me up and I'll make <laughs> sure we have it by the time we hit 300. Yep. Yep. People on my team can tell you that we've, I used to like, show me that problem. Like, I, I don't, I don't need to plan ahead for every potential problem that we could have. When we have that problem of too many sales to handle this thing, I will gladly go ahead and, and execute something, a change, but until it, until it happens, let's, uh, let's revisit. What's the, um, you mentioned earlier, and it's, it's also in the, the book to the, the Clayton Christensen, the element of luck. I think we've talked a little bit about this before, but what's your, what, how important is luck? in success as it's, as it's traditionally defined? Well, I think luck is, we're now talking about the dirty little truth of life that nobody wants to admit, which is that luck is very important and very unpredictable. You know, let's just take, take Bill Gates. So Bill Gates and Paul Allen went to one of the three high schools in the country that had a high-speed T1 line back in the 70s. So they learned to computer code in high school in a way that virtually nobody else in the world did. It was instrumental in their building Microsoft because they learned a lot. So it was they were very lucky that they were in that high school. But there were other kids in that high school that were equally lucky that didn't go on to build a Microsoft. So how do you parse out luck and hard work and, and fortuitous thinking. I think that in my head, luck is more often a downside than it is an upside that people hope for luck when they shouldn't do that. In other words, is this going to work? I, 
if I get lucky, it will. Well, you won't. I mean, if you look at the companies that in our lifetime have come from nothing, whether it's Amazon, Facebook, Google, I mean, we have an amazing number of some of the chip companies, which are a few years older, but not much, Oracle, Salesforce, all these companies had a great product. They knew exactly who they were selling it to, and they knew how to make money doing it. And yes, were, were there elements of luck and all that? Absolutely. But nobody, I bet Mark Beninoff at Salesforce never walked into a meeting and said, if we get lucky, this will work. Now, it may have worked, and he may say, in hindsight, we got lucky. Sure. But I think luck is very important, but it's more important in a, in a ethereal way than it is in a pragmatic way. Mm-hmm. It's Elon Musk had lots of lucky upbringings, but the fact that he was willing to put a lot of time, energy, and money and passion into electric cars was not luck. It was a brilliant insight into the future of the country's consumer needs. Now, he may have gotten to that because of a lot of luck. But I ask people, how lucky do you think you are? And anybody that's anybody that almost anybody I meet that says I'm not lucky, I know is a liar or self-delusional. Now, there are people who are in miserable situations who are, you know, in great pain and poverty. They're not, they're not lucky. I get that. But most of us are very lucky in the United States. And the fact that most of us don't want to admit that, I think, is a personality failure. Mm-hmm. I think we're better off to say, I'll take, I've been lucky, I'm going to take all the luck I can get, but I'm not going to count on luck to be successful. I think that's the right mantra. Yeah, I think I've heard, I think it was Warren Buffett, it's been, it's been years since I read it, but he talks about the, the ovarian lottery and it just the the mere fact of being born in the United States at this time in history or this time in life, because he, he I, I'm pretty sure it was him. He made the joke. If I was born 5,000 years before with the gift of math and analysis that I have to be able to evaluate the, va- the, the, the value of a company 5,000 years ago, no one gave a shit. The fact that I was born in the United States with the opportunity at this time, all at least played some you know, some foundational role. And then of course it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard work and study and, and everything else too. So. No, Chick Samaisi, the guy that wrote flow has a book called creativity. I think that's the title, but he says to be creative, a, you have to have a creative person. B, you have to have an environment in which that creative person can be successful. So you couldn't have had Einstein could have been born 10 years earlier and there would be no theory of relativity because all the physics that he needed to make the leap hadn't been invented yet. And then you need people that recognize it. If everybody would have looked at the theory of relativity and said impossible, it would have died. The fact that only four or five people could recognize it, they said, this is a real deal. So it's a real you know, triangle for Chicksamicea. It's circular. What Buffett says is true. You, it, it's really, um, you know, and look at Mark Zuckerberg. There he was at at an Ivy League school with a couple of rich twins to, to work with. And, and all he wanted to do was build something so he could get laid. I mean, <laughs> no disrespect to Facebook, but... Keep it simple. He wanted to digitize the Facebook because that's what they called it, actually. What's more important, passion or skill? 
Well, I think that in a highly in the highly competitive world that we live in, if you don't really love your skill and whether that's passion or not, let's leave that out of this for a second, that you won't be at the top of your class. So the first thing you have to ask is when you ask the passion skill question, what success look like? I mean, my little brother, really smart, was a software engineer at Honeywell for 30 years and retired and thinks he had the best life of any person on the planet and lives in a little town in Iowa and rides his bike every day and thinks his life's treated him perfectly well. And other people go look at him and say, gee, he could have been made five times as much money. He could live in a five times bigger house. He, you know, he's really a smart guy. He really is smart. He's by far and away the smartest one in our family. So he had a skill and he had other passions in it at all. He had a great life. So before you start asking about passion or skill, I think you have to ask the question, what's your objective? What are you trying to accomplish with your life? When you lay in your deathbed, if you look back and say, my brother's not going to say, oh, I should have made $100 million. I probably will. That's the difference between me and him. (laughs) If you want to be closer to the $100 million person, then you've got to love your skill because you have to compete. And this is right out of Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell. You really have to. To rise to the top, you have to really love what you do. Otherwise, you won't do it well. So whether that's passion or just luck, I I don't know. And the flip side is skill and passion don't guarantee success. I invested in a biotech company that has the brightest, most passionate CEO, PhD, MD, yada, yada, yada. And the company's never going to make a dime as near as I can figure out. So all the passion and skill in the world hasn't combined with all the other things you need to do. He never answered the question of how are we going to make money selling this product, in my opinion. But I think most people talk about passion in an abstract way. They should talk about passion and how do you love, much do you love doing what you're doing? Tiger Woods said something. Somebody once asked him, what does it take to be a professional golfer? Tiger looked at him and he said, you have to love to practice. <laughs> and the interviewer said, what? What?" And Tiger said, look, there are a lot of people out there that can swing a golf club very well. A lot of people. But he said, if you're going to play on the PGA, you have to be in the top, top one-tenth of one percent. You have to be so good. And the only way to get to be so good is to practice. And the only way to practice every day and not to quit is to love practice. If you say, well, I'm practicing so I can be a successful PGA player. After the first two weeks, you'll say, you know, I'm going to be successful something else. (laughs) But nobody ever talks about that. And I thought that was a brilliant response. You have to love your skill. You have to love honing your skill. You have to love that. And whether that's passion or that's something else, that's another story. I can be passionate. I'm going to succeed. I'm down on that kind of stuff. A friend of mine sent out a Winston Churchill 
climb every mountain, you know, we're going to take the beaches. I no disrespect to Winston Churchill, who I love, but that kind of stuff, I just don't think works in the modern world. But I really have a skill of marketing and I love to learn more about it. And I love to do it. And I don't mind getting up at six o'clock in the morning to spend two hours writing a marketing plan because I love, I like to practice to go back to Tiger Wood. That is what a skill needs to be successful. Hmm. So if you, if you just have a good a skill and you, and you love the skill and you love honing the skill and you understand what you want at the finish line and you can create a strategy answering the few questions and you get just a little bit of luck. We've basically uncovered the recipe for success here. <laughs> well, I said it I, wasn't complicated. <laughs> no, keep it simple. That's perfect. Uh, well, you the story about your, your little brother reminds me, I know we're both, we both read some stoicism, but it, it certainly reminds me of the power of perception too. Like what is success to you? And sometimes, you know, there's, there are some people that no matter how much they have, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's not enough to feel successful. And some people that if you want exactly what you have, it's, it's pretty, pretty good recipe for, for happiness and, you know, feeling successful. So I'm really, you know, glad to, glad to have you. I feel like I could talk to you for, for another hour um, before we go, where can, where can people find you if they're, if they're looking for more from, from Bob Perkins? Uh, well, I'm on LinkedIn, RJ Perkins. I'm the COO of Brightpool. That's that's how you know you're the right RJ Perkins. And my email is rjperkins at yahoo.com. So here I am. As I have said to you many times, in many respects, I'm sort of like an itinerant tennis player. I show up with a bunch of rackets and a can of balls and hope somebody will play. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always love playing the the intellectual tennis with you. It's always helpful. And I one other thing, you're you're also a, a member on the the Sales Leadership Foundations Forum. So um, anyone that wants to to hop in, uh, we have some lively discussion there on on sales, marketing, strategy, ops, things of that sort. So I think with that, we'll uh, we'll cut it loose and we'll we'll end it here. I really appreciate your time. I'm glad to have you back. Looking forward to the next one. Glad to talk to you. Best to Sam and the family. Thanks again for listening today. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to rate and review the podcast. It does help us out a lot. For more information about me or our business, Ray J. Green and Company, check out www.rayjgreen.com. And if you're in a role of leading sales improvement at the CEO level, as a business owner, or in a sales leadership position, you can apply to join our Sales Leadership Foundations community, plus get access to content and events that I don't share anywhere else. Again, rayjgreen.com. Thanks again for listening. Adios.